Our scripture reading this morning is from the Gospel of John, chapter 9. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned, or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, It is he. Others said, No, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, Then how were your eyes opened? He answered, The man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, Where is he? He said, I do not know. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now, it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, he put mud on my eyes and I washed and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, What do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? He said, He is a prophet. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, Is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind. But how he now sees, we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore his parents said, he is of age. Ask him. So for the second time they called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, Whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I have told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And they reviled him, saying, You are his his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, Why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshipper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, You were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? And they cast him out. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning, everyone. 
Let's just pray together as we begin. Our Lord and our God, we thank you for your word. Open our eyes, open our hearts that we may behold wondrous things in your law. We give you praise and thanks in Christ's name. Amen. While we are, of course, returning to John's gospel this morning, and we've reached John chapter 9, and what a wonderful passage, what an amazing story uh, this is in the life of Jesus and of the apostles. I think it is one of my favorites in John's gospel. Now, just so that we are conscious of how we've got to this point, the last two chapters, chapter 7 and chapter 8, and if you've missed those uh, sermons, then I, or some of them, I encourage you to go back on the website and listen to those. But we've uh, been witness to the, the growing tension uh, that reaches a kind of uh, zenith, actually, in the, at the end of the last chapter. We've seen a growing tension between Jesus and the religious authorities. In fact, the tension was so bad that at the end of the last chapter, where we were last week, they uh, wanted to stone Jesus. If you look at verse 59 there of chapter 8, they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus slipped away and he was hidden from them because his time had not yet come. So this, this miracle happens at a moment in which the tension, as you read the passage, is almost unbearable uh, between Christ and the religious authorities. It's also important to remember that there are two uh, key themes that the Apostle John deals with in uh, his gospel. So John the Evangelist has two primary things that he wants to communicate about Christ, that he is life and that he is light. He is the light that leads to life. Those are the two primary things. And so the organization of John's gospel um, is primarily theological. So John is not aiming at a detailed chronology, but a theological account of the work of Christ. And the emphasis is now that Christ is light. You see that coming out specifically in John chapter 8, that Christ is the light of the world. In fact, Jesus says in John 8, 12, I am the light of the world. Anyone who follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And as such, he is the living truth. He's the truth that sets us free. He's the one who brings light to our, heart, to our hearts and to our minds. If you look in verse 32 of the last chapter. And what happens is now the authorities begin to manifest their total blindness to the light. We heard last week how actually they're imprisoned in their blindness, in their darkness, by the father of lies. So you've got this contrast between truth and lies, and now between light and darkness. And their opposition actually goes to the extreme, again as we heard last week, of saying that the light, the one who is the light who has come, actually has a demon. That's how hostile now the opposition is between these two positions. There is an increasing, uh, what we would say is a, in, in philosophy and apologetics, there is an increasing epistemological self-consciousness. What that means is that people are growing more and more self-conscious of where they stand in relation to Christ. Certainly authorities, they're becoming more self-conscious of the opposition. Now the controversy has actually taken place as well during a feast, the Feast of Tabernacles. That's the context of chapters 7 and 8, the Feast of Booths. And it's happened in the temple complex as well. So not only is the dispute becoming uh, very oppositional, it's not very Canadian. 
You know, people would say they didn't like the tone of Jesus at this point. How often I've, if I'd heard that, every time I'd heard that, I'd have a dollar for it. I'd be a rich man now. Here, here, they don't like the tone. It's not just the tone, it's also the context. So the place where this is happening is in the temple complex. So it's, it's, the, it's the area where the, the rulers, the teachers, the Pharisees believe, well, their word holds sway. It's the place where they exercise their authority. And so what happens now is Jesus and his disciples are leaving the temple complex after all of this controversy and all of this hostility. And as they are, when he's about to be stoned, and as they leave, they see a beggar. A beggar who is blind from birth, who's known by the community to have been blind from birth, and that's why he's begging. He can't work. Not utterly convinced about his parents' care and support for him either, as you read the passage. And uh, he's out there begging. And so John brings now to very powerful light, in ca- with a kind of dramatic force, really, that Christ is the light who comes into the world bringing healing and also judgment on those who love darkness rather than light. So John is thinking about light and life in his gospel. He's showing how the opposition between light, the light and the darkness is coming to the fore. And now there is going to be a dramatic demonstration of the antithesis between light and darkness, the healing light of Christ and the darkness of those who love the darkness. So three very simple things. First, the opening of the minds of the disciples. First, the opening of the minds of the disciples. So this blind man, his condition is congenital. He doesn't have cataracts. He's not got astigmatism. It's, it's not simply that he's getting old and his sight wasn't what it used to be. Things are getting a bit blurry around the edges. He doesn't have glaucoma. His condition is congenital. He's blind from birth. And this is, this is emphasized. This is important. It's very important in the account. that This is his condition from birth because this is our condition from birth. It's not that we, you know, started well in the truth and things have deteriorated a bit. It's that our condition is mirrored in the condition of this man. We are blind with respect to the light of God from birth. You know, the world, the secular world, thinks of human beings as basically innocent And any problems that they have, any issues that they have, are the product of their environment. It's environmentalism. Oh, well, you know, the parents that you had, you know, the education that you had, the place you grew up in, your economic situation. Everything is environmental. Oh, you've had a hard lot. It's just been rough on you. Life's a tragedy. The basic starting point of our culture is man uh, can see He's good. He's innocent. I think, it was, uh, I think it was Rousseau who said, man was born free, but everywhere is in chains. And what he meant by that was, the human condition is basically one of freedom and sight, and civilization, and in particular Christian civilization, has chained people. So he turned it on his head. Well, the writer is concerned to to show us, in this miracle, Christ wants to show that we are blind from birth. That's our condition. You don't bring anything to the Lord. The disciples and later the authorities think that there must be some particular sin or offense then that this man has committed himself personally to leave him in this condition. 
What has he done or what has his parents done that this man should be like this, to have this congenital condition? They find it difficult to believe that it could be anything that his parents have done that would lead to this situation. Could he have sinned before he was born then? Are the philosophers right? Why was he born blind? So this is the opening of the minds of the disciples first. That happens in the passage. Why was he born blind? Now, of course, this is an understandable effort to make sense of the human experience. And that's, a, that's something that human, the human race has never been able to hold back. We want to make sense of the human condition and the human experience. We want to give an explanation for these sorts of things. Why? It's the old question of evil and suffering. Why does this happen? Why has that happened? Belief actually that suffering and death have some connection with wrongdoing some connection with judgment has actually been completely common for the human race throughout all time. A belief, a basic understanding that there is a connection between suffering, judgment, and wrongdoing. Now, of course, for many in the ancient world, this was just a matter of fate. Blind fate, that's what they called it. Fate. Things come up, they appear, and they're subject to cruel fate, the Greeks thought, and they die. Life is a tragedy. And how the Greeks loved their tragedies. We still do. We, we have our, most of our popular entertainment. Likes to paint human beings as victims of tragedy. The gods are angry. And that's why we're in this mess. So for, for ancient, the ancient culture, they thought there was a connection. They believed there was a connection. Or the Indian tradition, which may well have been where the, the Greeks got many of their ideas, sin and suffering are tied in terms of a principle called karma. That's a popular principle again in our culture. Nobody wants to be that interested in what Christ says about our condition. But hey, what Hinduism says, that's really interesting. Karma. Each immortal soul is working out the eternal consequences of its actions. That's the basic principle of karma. And the Hellenized parts of Palestine, that's the parts of Palestine that had been influenced by Greek philosophy, they would have understood that. So it's quite possible that the disciples, uh, being uh, um, amongst Hellenized Jews, this had invaded Jewish thought. So what's this man done? Was it his sin, maybe from some past life, or was it his parents' That he should be like this. I mean, after all, he was blind from birth, so how could it have been his sin? Must have been something prior to his birth, you see? So you can see where the influences of foreign philosophies may have come in. Many of the Jews had also tried to make very direct connections between a person's individual sin and their immediate condition. And maybe you do that. Maybe you try and draw some very direct connections in your own life. You can't understand the book of Job without understanding that Job's friends, Job's comforters, thought that. It was there also in the Jewish tradition. Now, 
The modern view of our culture is increasingly superstitious, of course, and it's part of the Hinduization of the West. We think in terms of fate and, you know, if somebody's sick, you notice that pagans will send each other good vibes and so on. You know, and so I need to do some good things this month. It's, it's, it's Hinduism. It's the same basic idea. It's out of the Greek and Indian tradition. But these kind of attempts to explain things in this way are doomed to frustration. It's not that there isn't a connection of sorts. But the connection that Scripture is interested in, the connection that Jesus is interested in and that he explains, is that the real issue at stake is the communal judgment of the whole race. That's what this man is a picture of. It's the communal judgment of the whole race. This man was born blind. And that's the, that's the condition of the whole race. And of course, sickness, disease, death is the condition of the whole of the human race. Because of sin. And it actually wasn't something that I did before I was born. Because I wasn't around before I was born. And it wasn't something my parents did. It's the condition of the whole race actually in Adam. In Adam. Now, of course, we could have a discussion about what the New Testament says about the importance of forgiveness and prayer and making sure we come to the, Lord, we come to the Lord's table in, a, in an appropriate fashion. That's all valid. That's to do with our covenantal relationship with God in the Lord Jesus Christ. The disciples want to offer answers to this situation. Jesus says, no, you've not understood. This is about, this man's situation is about the condition of the whole of the race. It's about the condition of the whole of the human race. All are in darkness. All need the light. And Christ has come to take away guilt and remove all misery. That was the messianic expectation, by the way of what the Christ would do. In Isaiah 29, 18 through 19, we read, On that day, the deaf will hear the words of a document. And out of a deep darkness, the eyes of the blind will see. The humble will have joy after joy in the Lord. And the poor people will rejoice in the Holy One of Israel. So this was the expectation. This light, this healing grace then, that Christ had come to show, had to be displayed in this man's life. And that's what he says. Verse 3, neither this man nor his parents sinned. This came about so that God's works might be displayed in him. We must do the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. So here was this man who was a picture of the whole race. The darkness had been trying to destroy the light, had just picked up stones to stone him. And now the light was going to destroy the darkness in this man. And so this was a work that Christ was doing with joy. And I think that's how we should read the signs, the miracles that the Lord Jesus did. He does these things with joy. He's glad to do his work. Notice that he says that we must do the works. We must do the works. And he does them with joy because night would come when he could do no more work in the flesh. Now, of course, his people, we as his people, would go on to do these kingdom works, but those would be a consequence of the Lord Jesus finishing the work that God had given him to do. So our works, kingdom works, are a consequence of the works 
that Jesus has done. And so he worked hard, and he does so with joy. And that means we have to work hard. Christ is our model. You know, uh, idleness and lethargy are sinful for God's kingdom people. We are called to work because night comes. Night is coming when you won't be able to work anymore in the flesh. The light shines. This light that is coming into the world that the disciples are seeing as their minds are being opened, it shines from the transcendent kingdom into the present. It's the dawning of a new day. It's heaven reaching into earth. It's the light of heaven reaching into the earth. This is the living word, the logos, who calls all things back to an obedient response to himself. Remember how John begins his gospel, in the beginning was the word. This is the light. This is the light that leads to life. This is the word who's tabernacling and walking amongst us. And he's calling all things back to an obedient response to the light. All of life is a response to the word of light and life. All creation responds. It hears and responds. The very fact that you're here this morning is because creation is responding to the Word of God. That's why the sun is up right now. That's why you're still breathing. All of creation is a response to the Word of God. And here now, this blind man's condition would respond to the Word of God. Now, remember it was the Feast of Tabernacles, I said. This had just happened. And the Feast of Tabernacles, as we've heard, was about the, the, the journey of the Jews through the wilderness, reminding them of their pitching their tents, the Feast of Booths, their journey with God, how God lived with them, tabernacled amongst them. That's why we called the place of the presence of God the tabernacle, the tabernacle. And now Jesus Christ is the true tabernacling presence of God. But the festival's ultimate fulfillment comes at the very end of all things, when the kingdom is fully come. And this is what the miracles of Christ are pointing towards. That's why they are signs. You don't stop at the sign. You look to what they point to. When God will live with us again face to face. This week I was in my own, in my own study time, Revelation, at the very end of Revelation and as I was preparing the sermon, I was reminded of this, Revelation 21, 3 through 4. Then I heard a loud voice from the throne. This is the end now. Look, God's dwelling is with humanity. And he will be with his people. He will live with, his, he will live with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will no longer exist. Grief, crying, and pain will exist no longer because the previous things have passed away. So this is what the breaking in, the dawning of the kingdom is now pointing to in this sign. It's a, it's a pointing toward the final tabernacling of God with us when all tears, all sickness, all sorrow, all blindness will be done away. It's gone. So Christ's work is historical. It's going on in their presence, in the presence of the disciples. But it's from above and it's pointing forward. It's a kingdom work. This is what Leslie Newbegin says, wonderful British missiologist who's dead now, in his comments on this passage. He says, we are not dealing with timeless verities in the life of the soul, but with a real happening in history with real opportunities which must be seized or they will be lost. The church is not sent into the world to explain the world, but to change it. The logos, the true light which makes sense of the world, is not to be found by a study of the experience of the world, for the world, though it was made by him, does not know him. 
only being part of his movement into the world do we make sense of the world. So if you want to make sense of the world, you enter the kingdom of God and you start doing the works of the kingdom. That's how you make sense of the world. That was a tough message for the ancient world because they thought the goal was explaining the world. But actually Christ comes to change it. To change it. And you and I, right now, do not have an eternity either. We're in the flesh. We have limited time while it's day. And the disciples, Jesus wanted the disciples to understand this. We make sense of the world when we serve the reconciling kingdom work of Christ in it. That's how we make sense of it. We serve the kingdom of Christ in it. Our lives, our actions then point forward to the full realization of the kingdom where in Revelation 21, sense is finally made of everything. So I want to encourage you, don't long for eternal retirement. Don't be longing to be out of this world. Jesus did his works with joy. You know, I often hear Christians say, oh, I'm so looking forward and longing for heaven. You know, actually, I give it very little thought. Very little thought. Because no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived anyway what God's prepared for those who love him. So I think about the work of the kingdom God's given me during the day now. That's what we should be concerned with. What has God put, it, put, put in our hands to do now? Secondly, opening the eyes of the blind. So he's opened the eyes first of the disciples. He corrects their misunderstanding. Tells them they have to join his kingdom movement to do the work while it's day. Now he opens the eyes of the blind man. So he opens their minds. Now he's going to open some eyes. And he acts immediately. I love this. Verse 6. You're probably thinking, wow, this is going to take a while to get through this sermon at this pace. Fear not. He acts immediately. Notice in this instance, there are no questions posed about this man's faith. No question is asked about his faith, what he believes, whether he believes. It's just a beggar who's born blind. Just like us. Thank goodness no particular questions are asked of us before we come to know the Lord about the condition of our faith and our hearts. We're dead in our trespasses and sins. Christ has to open our eyes. That's what has to happen. No questions are asked. No questions are posed because faith is going to be the result, not the prerequisite of this miracle. Faith is going to be the result and not the prerequisite of this miracle. I kind of explode some of all that word, faith, health and wealth, blab it and grab it teaching that says, oh, you've got to line up all your pieces and all the faith has got to be there and positioned right. And then if you get that right, then you can have a miracle. No, this is going to be the result. And and in like manner, I love the way Jesus acts. He just gets on with it. And we have to act. You know, this is why after the Gospels, the next book of The New Testament is not called the contemplation of the apostles. It's called the acts of the apostles. Because following the master, they act. Jesus' mode of healing is unusual this time. It seems very strange. And you notice actually with the miracles of Jesus, he does it differently almost every time. There's a few reasons for that. One is... Usually, there's a particular theological significance to what he's doing. And secondly, because we might end up trusting in some sort of mode, some sort of particular technique 
if Jesus did it the same way every time. Imagine if Jesus had only healed people by making mud in the church today, we'd have a big bowl of mud down there and a jug of water, and we'd be throwing it around at people. So he didn't want people to think, well, there's a particular mode that makes this happen. But there is a significance to what he does. It's not about a technique. It seems very strange to spit on the ground, make mud with saliva, and then anoint somebody's eyes with it. Well, there's several purposes, I think, that are important. First of all, to directly anoint somebody's eyes like that makes crystal clear to everyone that this person is blind. You could never do that to a sighted person. You put mud all over somebody's eyes. They can't see. It's actually not always easy to tell with some people who are actually blind that they are blind. Not always easy to tell. We're reminded by this, actually, that we're not always aware of our own blindness lacking God's favor. So Christ wanted to make it absolutely crystal clear that this man was blind. He puts mud paste all over his eyes. Secondly, I think it's very likely that Jesus' use of mud is a parallel to the original creation of man. And remember, John is interested in that parallel because you see it in John chapter 1. It's a a parallel to the original creation. The Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground, Genesis 2.7. Jesus is showing his power now as the creator by imitating the original creation. He makes some mud. He takes the dust of the ground to give the man born blind new sight. We actually discover later that the creative power of the miracle was not lost on the man who had been healed. What does he say in in verse 32 through 33? He says, since the world began, it has been unheard of that anyone opened the eyes of one who was born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. That's his eventual conclusion from this. Since the world began, since the creation, this hasn't happened. So here is new creation. This is a work of new creation. Of course, it it typifies what has to happen in our hearts, and it points forward to the eschaton, to the restoration of all things. This is the beginnings of the new creation. The creator calls back to wholeness by reforming the clay. He puts the clay on the man's eyes. Now, he's not restored instantly. Must have been a strange thing. Somebody has to lead him to the pool of Siloam with a mud patty on his face. Looks like one of my daughters coming down in the morning. (laughs) The couple of cucumbers. I've always wondered what that's all about. That's a new insight here. So he's he's not healed instantly. He's told to go and wash in a pool, the pool of Siloam, which means scent. There's significance that that John says that as well, because Christ is the one who has been sent by the Father. He's the sent one. So this is a reminder to everybody that the one who sends him is the one who has been sent. And interestingly, he goes, and he goes quickly. He goes to wash, and the washing is, of course, a symbol of cleansing. Washing is a symbol of cleansing. Now you're muddy, you're you're covered, and now you're washed. It's a symbol, of course, of baptism too. Christ is revealing himself as the only one who can wash us, who can cleanse us, and make us walk in the light. And baptism symbolizes that. So water is important too. He doesn't fully understand yet. This man does not yet understand what's happening. But he goes, and his going is an act of faith. He'd probably heard of the man Jesus. Everybody had heard of him in the area. He's only sitting outside the temple complex, remember. 
And unlike Naaman, you'll recall in Naaman the Syrian in 2 Kings 5, he was pretty offended by having to go and wash himself. This man goes without hesitation. He washes and he goes home a new man. He doesn't actually return to Jesus at this point. Doesn't know who he is. Doesn't know where he is. But he goes home a new man and his neighbors are amazed. They can hardly believe it's the same person. Look at eight verses 8 through 12. You see it there. Isn't this the man who sat begging, some said? He's the one. No, others were saying, but he looks like him. And he kept saying, no, I'm the one. I'm the man. You're right. I'm the guy. They asked him, how then are your eyes opened? He said, the man called Jesus made mud, spread it on my eyes, told me to go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed. I received my sight. Where is he, they ask. I don't know, he says. The only answer that he's got at this point is, well, there was this man called Jesus. This man called Jesus. His condition defies all explanation. This is a real answer to all those people who think, oh, you know, back in biblical times, people didn't really, you know, because of course these miracles, they, wouldn't, they were illusions or this, that, or the other. No, the people were not stupid. Nobody could believe it. They thought it must be somebody else. Is he a lookalike? Has he got a twin brother somewhere that we didn't know about? Who is this man? The only answer that he's got thus far is it's the man called Jesus. But because his condition defied all explanation, they take him to the proper authorities. His neighbors aren't uh, trying to mistreat him at this point. They take him to the proper authorities to investigate what happens. He takes them to the judges, though, of the old world. These are the judges, not of the new creation, but of the old world. And they don't understand. They can't yet recognize the judge of all the earth, the Christ who is making all things new. So that's Jesus opening the eyes of the blind man. Finally, he now opens hearts. Now he has to open hearts. He's opened the minds of the disciples. Now he opens the eyes of the blind man. Now he's going to open their hearts. So when this man is taken to the authorities, what's their first concern? Oh, hang on a second. This has never happened since the world. Nobody's ever heard of anything like this. Hang on a minute. This happened on the Sabbath. That can't be right. That can't be right. Can it? They could not understand that the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And that's the issue right here. The Sabbath was made for man, for his blessing, for his good, for his rest, for his recovery, for his healing. Not man for the Sabbath. Man is made on the sixth day. The Sabbath is given to him as a gift. It's made for him. How dangerous then, dead form, dead tradition, and false piety can be to real action, to kingdom work. So many Christians want to spend their lives staring at their navels. And then judging what other people are actually doing. I'd rather do and make some mistakes than spend my entire Christian life gazing at my navel, pondering my own piety. Here was the maker and Lord of the Sabbath giving a man the rest of God and healing him. And they hated him for it. To the Pharisees, this was a dilemma then. Can, could somebody who has broken their interpretation of the law be sent from God and give sight to someone born blind? 
If it was true, their position, their authority had been radically challenged. That was a problem. There was a dilemma now. They didn't know what to do. In fact, verse 16 tells us they were actually divided over it. The Pharisees themselves were divided over the question. Can this man who has violated our interpretation of the law actually be from God? They couldn't understand the kingdom and the new creation was coming in Jesus. So they asked the man again, what happened? Who is this man who did this? And he moves beyond a mere confession that he is a man called Jesus. As his, as his heart begins to be opened, as his understanding begins to grow in verse 17, he says he's a prophet. He's a prophet. Okay, he's not just the man Jesus now. Now he's a prophet. He's beginning to move into the, the light. What does this do with the authorities? It actually pushes them in the opposite direction. They move in the opposing direction. Because the foundation of their world is being threatened. And this is the challenge, friends, of the gospel in our culture today. It's been the same in every culture, in every age. To move into the light and confess Christ is to accept you're in the darkness and that you have a false foundation. And that foundation that you've built on is now being threatened. You want to understand why people get hostile with you with respect to you trying to share some of the best news in the world with them? Ever wondered why that happens? It's because their foundation is now being threatened by the gospel. It's hard when you've built your life on a false foundation to admit that you're blind. Christ is the healer and savior. We say to our culture, not the state. The state isn't our savior. Money is not our savior. And healer, a vaccine is not our savior and healer. But to accept that rocks people's world. It threatens the foundation of their lives. So the Pharisees want corroboration. They can't believe this. What's the best kind of corroboration in a situation like this? Well, his parents. Because they just... Because they can't believe it, they want to confirm his blindness at birth. His parents come in. What do his parents do? Well, they say, yeah, this is our son. And he was blind at birth. But they're afraid. They're afraid to stand with the light. They're afraid to stand in the light. Why? Because their concern is still their foundation. That's their inclusion in the community, the synagogue. They don't want to be cast out. They've already said, if you believe that Jesus is the Messiah, if you start confessing this man, the authorities have said, you're out. Consider yourself ostracized. You're no platformed. You are cast out from the spheres of cultural orthodoxy. So they're afraid. Of course they are. They don't want to publicly stand with Jesus. So what do they say? Well... It is our son. He was blind from birth. We don't know anything else. Ask him. He's old enough. Not the best parents in the world. You know? In other words, if he wants to get kicked out of the community and the synagogue, that's his business. We're staying in. We're staying in. So they've looked at that miracle. They know their son was congenitally blind But their commitment is so much to their culture, their community, their foundation, they don't want it rocked, they don't want it threatened. They just pass the buck. They say, it's us. It's our son's business. You ask him, he's of age. We're not saying anything. How hard it is for religious people, Muslims, Jews, Hindus, cultural Christians to really confess Jesus. For a secular people, 
who are also religious, the religion of secular humanism, to really confess Jesus lest they be cast out, lest you be cast out of your family, your community, the acceptance of your community. You'll often be cast from the circles you belong to, cast out of them. So you have to be ready to accept their disapproval. Are you afraid to stand with Jesus today? Oh, yeah, he's the miracle worker. Yeah, yeah, I, I was born blind. My friends were born blind. But I'm not saying anything more than that. I don't want to cause any offense. don't want to be cast out of the community. don't want to be ostracized. The parents' issue is they didn't want to stand with Jesus or the witness of their own son. Because here were the guardians of the established order. What is it that they said? We know. We know. And that's what our culture says. We know. Science says. The experts say. The philosophers say. The government says. We know. We see. But actually, this is just proof of their blindness. Look at the man's response by contrast in verse 25. I don't know. I don't know. There's only one thing I really know. The transformation of my first condition to the present one. That's what I know. And that's the critical difference. All he knows is that his present condition is transformed from the first. He was blind, now he sees. He's gone from darkness to light. He's not an authority, he's just a witness. Doesn't claim to be an expert, he's just a witness. And we're, we're witnesses, we're not authorities. Why did this happen? Why is this man blind? Why is this person deaf? Why is this person sick? I'm not an authority. But I'm a witness to this, the kingdom of God come in Jesus Christ. Well, the opposition actually begins to illuminate the man's heart and mind. And it's funny how opposition actually does that. When faith is actually tried, when your faith is tested, when it's attacked by the world, if it's in fertile soil, often the opposition in your life will have the the opposite of the intended effect of those who are attacking you. They want to push the faith and the confidence and the commitment out of your life, but as you face that down with boldness and confidence and trust Christ, actually, your faith grows. Your trust grows. Your confidence grows. Your hope grows. That's what opposition actually does for us when it's planted in a a heart that is submitted to the Lord. This man's heart is now being brought, drawn out to Jesus. And the, the interrogators are becoming furious. They start to directly attack him. And then they appeal to authority again, if you look at the passage. Well, we, we follow Moses. We know who he is. We don't know who this other fellow is. We've got our authorities. We follow them. Of course, they didn't actually believe Moses. Jesus told them that later. He didn't don't believe Moses. If they believed Moses, they would have believed him. They didn't believe Moses. But they appealed to authority. Our culture does that today. Oh, talk about a logical fallacy. Just an appeal to authority. Any old authority will do. I read it. Saw it online. An appeal to authority. Well, then the man testifies that the man who healed him must be from God because God doesn't listen to sinners. Unless he's from God, he couldn't do anything. So now you see that the opposition to this man and his witness, is bringing about the light of truth bursting into his heart. He's, starting to, he's becoming illuminated now. And this is the last straw for the authorities. As the light shines out of his testimony, all their judicial objectivity is totally abandoned. There's no religious neutrality, friends. These weren't neutral judges of this man and the Lord. You think our judiciary in Canada is neutral towards Christ? 
think our state and government is neutral with respect to Jesus, not on your life. Neutrality is an illusion when it comes to the claims of the Lord Jesus and of his people. So they accuse the man then of being born in sin. In other words, that's why you were blind. They go back to the old error. You know where you were born blind? You were born in sin. How dare you presume to challenge us and teach us? Do you ever want to go up against the experts, the authorities, the teachers, the, the message of the culture? This is frequently the response. How, how dare you? Who are you? Where's your doctorate? Which university did you go to? Where were you trained? I don't recognize that. You're not an expert. So he suffers for Christ's sake. He suffers scorn for Christ's sake. Now that's a privilege. That's this man's first true privilege. That for witnessing to the truth about Christ, he now suffers scorn and is cast out. And we have to count this a privilege as well. This man is actually compelled to choose now with his whole life in the face of all this hostility It's not just about now, oh yeah, I was blind, now I'm seeing. They put him in a position where he has to choose with his whole life. Do you want to be outside of this community and cast out? And they've actually called him, by the way, pretty much under oath at this point. Give glory to God. That was a call. That was an oath. They placed him under oath. And he now knows, under, under oath, he has to choose with his whole life. Am I going to stand with Jesus or not? And that's the choice for you and me. With our whole life, do I stand with Christ or not? Do I stand with Jesus or not? Even in the face of hostility. All those who insist on saying, we know, apart from surrender to Christ, are actually pushed by their own testimony into deeper darkness. And this is the reality and judgment of the gospel. The healing light of the gospel opens hearts, but it compels those who love darkness to seek refuge in deeper darkness. That's what's happening. No, no, we know, we see. That's why Jesus says in Matthew 6, 23, if the light in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? The man doesn't yet fully know who Jesus is. course this explains the decline of our culture doesn't it if the light in you is darkness how deep is that darkness the more you insist we see we know against what Christ has said the deeper the hole the pit of darkness you dig for yourself and you're forced further and further into the dark by your own confession I know I see he doesn't yet know fully who Jesus is but hey the good shepherd seeks him out. He chooses for the Lord and he's thrown out and then the Lord seeks him out. You want the Lord to seek you out? Then allow yourself to be thrown out. Think of that, that Jesus, the son of God, hears of his situation and he goes to find him. The man has never seen Jesus before, remember? He doesn't know who he is. He maybe begins to recognize his voice. The good shepherd knows your situation as well today, whatever it is. And he comes to seek you out as well. Those who stand for him, he seeks out. This encounter now with the Lord is necessary so that the man will fully come into the light. His heart is being opened. He's not yet fully through into the light. So far, his testimony is based just on what Jesus has done for him, not on Jesus' identity. So Jesus now asks him when he finds him outside 
the temple somewhere. He asks him the key question. Do you believe in the Son of Man? Do you believe in the Son of Man? And that is the one great necessary question of the gospel. Do you believe in the Son of Man? The man is now actually invited to declare his relationship to the Lord Jesus himself. Don't forget, as son of man, the significance of that expression, Christ is the man called Jesus. The man called Jesus, he did it. But as son of man, he's also the one to whom has been given everlasting dominion. He's the son of God. Daniel chapter 7, verse 9, we see it all the way back there. So the man asks him, he says, who is he, sir? Who is he? that I may believe in him. Now, I don't know who you are today, but maybe you're asking that question. You're here actually because you've been asking it for a while. Who is he? And Jesus then fully declares himself to him. He is the one speaking with you. And at that moment, the light of the world breaks in fully into that man's life and his heart is totally open to God. I believe, Lord, I believe, and he falls down and worshipped him. Now you think about that for a minute. It's the man, Jesus, who did this. But now he believes he's the son of man and he falls down in worship and Jesus accepts his worship. Note that well. A human being receives the worship of another human being. You want to take a knee? Our culture wants to take a knee. Take a knee to Jesus, son of man, son of God, and fall down and worship him. All men owe him their worship as the source of light and life. And this is how the kingdom antithesis enters the world. Those who acknowledge their blindness receive sight. Those who say they see are blinded. It's as simple as that. That's the kingdom antithesis. Those who acknowledge their blindness receive sight. Those who claim they can see are blinded. And so the passage concludes with that great lesson of the entire gospel which brings the hearts of all men into judgment. Look at the last couple of verses. Jesus said, I came into this world for judgment in order that those who do not see will see and that those who do see will become blind. Some of the Pharisees who were with him heard these things and asked him, we aren't blind too, are we? If you were blind, Jesus told them, you wouldn't have sin. But now that you say we see, your sin remains. If you claim to know and to see when you're blind and reject the Son of Man, you love darkness rather than light. And that's why the Jews there are representative of all people, of all human beings. Unbelief keeps you in the dark. Only Christ opens the eyes of our hearts. I love what uh, Newbigin says here about this insight at the very end. He says, the achievement Every achievement in making sense of the world insofar as it succeeds creates a claim to see which is threatened by the coming of Jesus who overturns the wisdom of the world. All the systems which are extrapolations from the experience of a world turned in on itself. The coming of the light must always threaten every such system for it can only be received with the simplicity of a child." can only be received with the simplicity of a child. And this world is threatened by the gospel because it overturns its seeing and its knowing. And today, even the worship of the church is a threat to the world's claim to knowledge. And they want to put out that light. Your presence because of Christ 
in your family, in your community, in your vocation is also a threat to the world's wisdom and its system and its false claims. But your testimony, I was blind, but now I see, is actually wisdom from above. And it begins and it ends with worship. With worship. That's why our worship today is so important. Because we believe in the Son of Man and we've come to worship him. It's an act of surrender. For those who claim to see Their sin remains, but for us who acknowledge our blindness, our sin is washed away and we are healed. And then we are also sent to bring the light of the kingdom and to work the works of God. That's the purpose of our seeing now, so that we become light bearers. So let's come now to the Lord's table, confessing, Lord, I believe. And we can know again the washing away of our sins.